Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Uh, Today is another in our series of weekly updates uh, from our panel, uh, going through what's going on in uh, everything that we need to know in asset protection and loss prevention. Uh, We're going to touch on some of the points there in that rich uh, data set of need. And um, as always, I'm uh, joined by our esteemed colleagues. Uh, we've got Kevin Tran, our producer, Tony D'Onofrio, um, and uh, Tom Meehan. Today, I'll kind of start off and talk a little bit about, um, of course, COVID, what we're dealing with. But most importantly, we've been trying to, to maintain some contact and, and highlight a little bit around what the uh, in, incredible uh, science, technology, medicine, uh, community around the entire globe working 24-7 on the issue. And so when it comes down to, we're looking at, uh, first of all, in the United States, the uh, positivity test rates, right? Just the percentage of tests that are administered daily, what percent of those are indicating positive uh, for the corona uh, virus? They're seeing the uh, COVID-19 show up uh, in some form, the RNA strands and so on. Um, we see that that's continuing to decrease over the last uh, 30, almost 40 days now. Um, nationwide, it's getting down to 6% uh, and continues to decline. Um, in some of the high infectivity rate states, uh, we're seeing the same. Arizona, uh, Florida, California, and others, uh, theirs continue to, um, I would not say plunge, but continue to decrease. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, continued physical distancing and mask wearing um, that is most likely playing a large role in the reduction in positive testing. Now with uh, schools uh, in colleges, universities going back in session, many of them, uh, whether they're physical or not, I know here at the University of Florida, um, we can tell uh, when anywhere you move around the city of Gainesville, students are back um, in waves and masses but most of the students have either all or the vast majority of their courses are, are online now. So <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I know here they, had, they took a gator pledge, if you will, that they would mask up. And just the eyeball test of moving around on the, as I drive around or walk around, whether on campus or even nearby, which is more significant, I'm impressed at how many students are walking around with their sporting their new gator or orange and blue mask. Um, but they all sign these pledges. So it's very, very interesting. Uh, and let's see if we can maintain the compliance. Um, and particularly because the students, you, you know, we're humans, we're very, very social uh, peoples and um, students more than most. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But again, testing right now uh, is indicating nationwide a continued decrease. Um, I understand now the CDC's come out with data on 
sort of assessing and looking at death certificates that have been issued. And I think uh, looking at randomized samples of those death certificates nationwide, uh, trying to determine or discern um, an individual who died um, of COVID-19 and those that died with COVID-19, looking at underlying uh, other comorbidities, if you will, underlying conditions and so on, and just getting a better idea about what that might look like, what's a better understanding of the infection rate. And of course, the the um, all too scary fatality rate to assess the virus in a, a much quicker fashion than we normally do, it sounds like in the medical field, that can take years or decades to really understand. And that's gonna be the case here. But it, so far, I guess the indications are that um, it can be a serious disease, of course. It can be a fatal disease, um, but uh, may not be as fatal as other viruses that we've been confronted with. Um, we certainly know it's not like an, on a Ebola scale or, or even close or even some of the other uh, epidemics or even like the 1918 pandemic as far as lethality. Um, but uh, let's stay tuned and see where that comes out um, as just another data point in understanding the disease and it spread. Last week talked about what the United States was up against. The administration froze uh, China travel in late January um, and that seemed to start to freeze, but uh, you know, it's obviously evidence is that um, there was a lot of infiltration of the, of the virus and the disease um, on both uh, East and West Coast almost simultaneously, with, which seemed to preclude the, uh, the idea that, it, that the disease could be started, the spread of the virus could be stopped um, as rapidly, particularly amongst 330 million people in, 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 in great particularity in uh, New York, um, Seattle, other places where you know, you're gonna see hundreds of thousands or even millions of humans clustered very, very tightly. Um, even as the virus is diagnosed, there were still big gatherings in San Francisco um, and other places uh, just going out on the streets, partying, going to restaurants, and so on. So uh, that seemed to be part. We also talked about that uh, in normal situations for decades, a century, the county health department is the uh, on-the-ground uh, units or institutions that deal with um, any type of infectious diseases normally um, at a great scale, including developing their own testing, uh, handling their own testing, um, their uh, outreach, their uh, infection testing, or I'm sorry, tracking and so on, uh, they became overwhelmed uh, at a rate because of the infectivity rate of the um, COVID-19 that, uh, or this, the SARS virus that um, they just couldn't handle it. It took a little while for the, for the larger testing labs to be approved. Um, it was sped up dramatically, but those regulations were in place. So um, we're looking at some of that. And then again, now we're still seeing that 40 to 60% of uh, infected, of those of us that have been infected with COVID-19 are just asymptomatic or almost subclinically uh, symptomatic. And, uh, but yet many of us at some percentage are super spreaders. And so again, it's this, um, the, this asymptomatic and, and pre-symptomatic, low-symptomatic, uh, high, high percentage of infection that in addition to the uh, bi-coastal introduction uh, and then the overwhelming uh, burden on local county health departments that uh, created uh, you know, what we're talking about. And that's a nationwide pandemic. And it still looks like out of 330 plus uh, million of us here um, that there's a, 
relatively small percent that have been infected, but is it 8% or is it 15 or 16% is what, uh, again, the scientists are trying to understand. Um, we talk a lot about testing. Again, now, we, last week, uh, we talked about 30, 36-minute tests that are very, very um, accurate, very uh, reliable and valid. Um, and so now uh, new ones have been introduced to my understanding that are now 15-minute tests. There's probably a little more, possibly a little more false positivity uh, or false negative type 1 or type 2 errors there. Um, but the idea of having a $1 to $5, 15-minute uh, feedback test uh, that people can self-administer is a pretty powerful one. And it looks like that is now here. Um, I understand the manufacturers are, are ramping up and that they'll be able to provide 10, 20 million uh, pretty soon at a monthly rate, uh, starting out with several million per month. So look forward to that. I think a lot of that kind of testing is going to help play a huge role in uh, getting some kind of handle on the disease, uh, on the virus itself. Another interesting thing out there is the, the idea if you look at the breakdown between tests, of course, on the front end, uh, uh, therapies for those of us that are now infected and are displaying some type of clinical, uh, um, uh, you know, we're presenting with some kind of clinical symptoms, uh, but particularly those are the, of us that get the, a more serious version of the disease. Um, where are we with that? We know there are now closing in on 200 antivirals in testing. 61% of those antivirals are new, designed for uh, COVID-19 for the SARS-CoV-2 vir uh, virus. So 27% uh, are uh, redirected. They are, there was a therapy that was used for another virus, <clears throat> maybe even another coronavirus in development that's been focused sharply on the, this particular novel coronavirus. 12% were repurposed. Um, it's just an existing vi uh, uh, antiviral for some reason, or it may have been for cancer treatment and, and other therapies. Um, but when you look at the uh, treatments that are available now and coming out, the therapies themselves, um, in addition to the uh, antiviral therapy, uh, over we've got about 330, 340 treatments out, therapies out now uh, that are not antiviral, they're different um, mode or method of action um, type antiviral or non-antiviral, excuse me, um, but in this case, 61% of those are redirected uh, non-antiviral therapies, 31% um, repurposed, and only 8% are actually new for this particular virus. Uh, vaccines, we know that there are now um, uh, 23 phase one vaccines, where it's the early safety and dose ranging or trying to understand uh, how much and how often or how many times should we be uh, dosed. Uh, 14 are in phase two. These are in, in expanded uh, safety and efficacy and dose ranging trials. 14 different vaccines are in phase two now. Phase three, just since we last talked, we've gone from seven to nine vaccines in large scale efficacy tests or phase three trialing. Um, again, we've still got three vaccines approved for early or limited use now um, in uh, China and, uh, and so on. So, uh, you can start to see uh, some real good movement. Um, <clears throat> I know that there are concerns out there by people across the board around any vaccine. Uh, it seems to be somewhat limited, but a particularly a vaccine that didn't take years of testing, but rather uh, months of testing. 
So again, uh, it looks like in, in this case, particularly the United States, the UK and others, um, and even in China, there is uh, there are continued 30 to 50,000 person phase threes. Uh, many of these vaccines are going through multiple phase three trials instead of just one trial. Um, they're, uh, they've expanded. It looks like in most cases, the uh, who, those that are reviewing uh, in the United States, of course, is going to go to the NIH, National, National Institutes of Health, um, and then to FDA and other testing for approval uh, or review for approval. Uh, but expanding the boards, the review boards, having external review boards, so that more and more physicians and scientists are uh, able to evaluate all the data that are out there, uh, rerun numbers and so on. Um, but do these things in parallel instead of, again, waiting for years for everybody to review. So by having larger um, scale tra trials, having multiple phase three large scale trials, um, and then by having multiple uh, reviewers evaluating and reestablishing and looking at the data, um, that's going to be, that's sort of what's going on right now to increase that. The next the next point, of course, is manufacturing. We know with uh, Operation Warp Speed, uh, the administration and Congress came up with funds for um, moving vaccines through the approval process uh, with a little more haste, but no less rigor. Um, but then starting to build and uh, or repurposing uh, viral producing factories or other factories that were more readily uh, repurposed for the, the manufacturing process to uh, instead of waiting. So <clears throat> many of the nine vaccines that are currently in large scale efficacy tests in phase three, um, they're manufacturing those vaccines. Uh, in some cases, several million have already been produced. So if and when they're approved through rigorous phase three trialing uh, and through multiple reviews, uh, then There'll be millions available. Uh, there are teams uh, in different universities, uh, in the National Institutes of Health, uh, private organizations and so on too, that have been running models and developing the, the distribution protocol, particularly the vaccines that might require refrigeration or at least cooler temperatures uh, in countries or, or areas, even the United States that have uh, very few or no uh, distribution resources. So every country in the world has um, rural areas or most countries uh, or low resourced areas, if you will, they don't have much of an a medical infrastructure, if any at all. So those logistics and that planning is uh, underway and has been actually for the last two or three months. So that's good news. Um, who's going to be prioritized to receive vaccines? That also has been in a lot of planning and modeling. Um, frontline healthcare workers, those that are most exposed, those that are the most vulnerable um, because of uh, comorbidities, age, and so on. And so working through models to understand. Uh, but again, because of multiple factories, multiple vaccines, um, and much more efficient distribution models and actual rehearsals and things going on, the idea is that if uh, a person may not need to wait um, for too long, if it requires two injections like the uh, anti-shingles that uh, were all pretty much recommended to get over age 50, um, in this case, Shingrix uh, version that I got, uh, it was two uh, injections that were X amount of months apart. So um, that may be the case with one or more of the vaccines uh, to, to really make sure that there's a robust immune response um, that's uh, good enough to combat and sustain. We talked also last week about um, systemic versus localized, uh, that the uh, the large muscles evidently are the best place in a lot of cases for viral um, 
vaccine uh, onboarding site, uh, the, you know, our shoulders, the deltoid muscle is the most common, um, evidently. <clears throat> but some are also developing uh, nasal uh, uh, delivery models like we see with children and so on for the influenza vaccines, uh, because that might provide an almost uh, a sterilization of the all important nasal passages so that not only is the individual uh, now uh, got systemic protection from the injected vaccine, but maybe a nasal version or some complementary vaccine, uh, particularly for super spreaders and so on, might protect other people from them um, until the uh, full effect of the systemic or in addition to, uh, because that may uh, protect the individual that's been vaccinated uh, through injection, but um, they still are carrying the virus. <clears throat> so um, in their nasal passages and so on. So that's just a little more than we maybe all wanted to know. But I think the good news again is that there is massive, very rigorous scientific evaluation. Uh, and now we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of therapies and uh, dozens and dozens of vaccines that are under production and rigorous review through three different phases and multiple boards. So um, <clears throat> I think the next thing is looking over at LPRC very quickly. Um, I always want to encourage everybody to go to the uh, lpresearch.org website. Um, the Knowledge Center there uh, contains all kind of working group notes. Again, we've got seven working groups working on a variety of issues from supply chain protection, in-store merchandise protection, violent crime uh, reduction in all forms, including now looking at uh, anti-maskers and how do we <clears throat> safely address the issue so that others are not infected or even intimidated. Since there seems to be avoidance behavior continuing, we're good customers who are either vulnerable themselves or fearful uh, or live with uh, vulnerable people are still not going into stores or are going into stores and only buying limited amounts or, or selecting items, but somebody in line uh, is not protecting uh, them and others, uh, much less themselves by uh, not wearing a mask or not wearing it properly. Their nose is hanging out and so on. So the, that's kind of going on right now in these working groups, those sorts of discussions and pulling together research that's being done. We saw the CDC guidance come out about uh, suggested or possible ways to handle people that are refusing to wear masks uh, in these public places and most importantly in those spaces um, and what the fallout could be. In the LPRC Knowledge Center, we also have, of course, a lot of webinars. We continue to upload our webinars in there. Um, offender interviews, we've, we've done literally hundreds of offenders of interviews and we continue to do inter offender interviews. Most of those, if not many, are uploaded into the LPRC Knowledge Center. <clears throat> And then there's much, much more up in there uh, that we'd recommend. Also, uh, bear in mind that LPRC does have a YouTube channel that's available to anyone uh, where you'll see all kind of uh, fantastic content that's put out by LPRC. Uh, we also encourage everybody to uh, go ahead and subscribe. It's free. It's short. It's punchy. punchy. It looks really good. Uh, the LPRC Connect e-newsletter. Uh, again, there's a landing page on lpresearch.org. Just like we've talked about before, there's a landing page for COVID-19, a landing page for uh, looting and, and other physical protection methods and research that's going on. Um, Impact, LPRC Impact 2020, uh, the virtual version. Uh, we'll be going live as well as having a lot of pre-recorded content, 12 
highly impactful, we believe, sessions uh, on October 6th and 7th. You can go again to lpresearch.org uh, for free registration, pass it on, uh, get yourself, uh, your colleagues um, involved, uh, whether they're APLP or non-APLP, in, this, in these discussions, understanding science-based or evidence-based practice, but looking at real-world uh, research in action that's going on where retailers are describing alongside uh, the researcher colleagues um, what they're doing, what they're finding, what that means. Um, the AI, the AR, the VR, the IoT uh, development and testing and repurposing that's going on here at LPRC continues. Um, developing data sets, cleaning them, annotating them uh, so that we've got higher quality data sets to use to train uh, artificial intelligence models. Right now, computer vision is our focus uh, and working with uh, uh, many of our sponsor members, uh, uh, Malong, for example, um, NVIDIA, uh, Everseen, uh, Bosch, Axis, Sensormatic AI, and others uh, working on training and then developing models for inferencing, inferencing um, developing either uh, and now analytical or real-time decision support engines and so on. And then looking at the response protocols, what's it look like if we, we, we picked up a potential threat? So a lot of exciting things going on at LPRC, LPRC Innovate, um, curbside pickup development, uh, mobile and so other self-checkout uh, development and so on. So uh, I'm going to go ahead here and summarize that uh, there's a lot happening in the world and there's a lot happening hopefully here at the LPRC to support you and your teams and your success uh, for everybody's guardianship and protection. Uh, with no further ado, uh, Tony D'Ofrio, if I might head over to you, Tony, and let's, what's going on around the U.S. and the world. Thank you very much, Reed. So I'm going to start actually with Amazon this morning. So Amazon just opened their first full-line grocery store outside of Whole Foods in California. It's called Amazon Fresh. It's 35,000 square feet, so much larger than the Amazon Go that we're used to from Amazon in the past. It offers free same-day delivery and pickup if you have an Amazon Prime account. Shoppers can order ahead for deli, meat, seafood, and even pizzas using the Amazon app. It marks the launch of their smart uh, shopping cart, which they're calling the Amazon Dash Card, where you basically are scanning everything inside of your cart, and then you're walking right out the door using the smart cart as your checkout devices. Uh, throughout the store is Alexa, so you can stand in an aisle and say, Alexa, where can I find the spaghetti? And Alexa will respond and tell you where to go find the spaghetti. It also has an interface so you can create an Alexa shopping list and then uh, you'll be guided to Alexa into the store. And really this store reinforces what's happening to the online world, which is uh, companies like Amazon have figured out that they do need physical stores. They are an important element of the mix. You need a balance between online and physical. So they, they acquired Whole Foods and now they're opening their own grocery stores, full line grocery stores, because they, if you look at Walmart, that is a, a lot of their success and even Target is coming from uh, buy online pickup and stores, especially in grocery. So you're going to see a lot more physical stores coming from Amazon into the future. So that's a little bit about Amazon. I'm going to switch to apparel, uh, new, new data from Retail Dive this week that uh, 
there are some glimmers of hope after uh, most of us have not been buying clothes, but we started to go back about 29 to 30% of us have started uh, buying clothes again. The variables, the chains that are winning, the ones that are getting the business are the following. They're, they're an offline retailer. They're operating away from a mall. They're selling more than apparel. They're selling casual clothing. They have a strong e-commerce and or services model like a buy online, pick up in stores. They have good inventory management so they know what they have, where they have it. And they're not a department store. That is because department stores are expected to be the worst performing segment this year with a 691% decline. So department store is where it's really struggling, especially in the apparel space. Also a new study this week from uh, MBLM in terms of uh, brand intimacy. So which uh, this is a larger study on how consumers are emotionally attached to brands. And retail is actually the fourth industry in line overall out of 15 industries that they analyze in terms of brand attachment, emotional brand attachment. The top five most intimate retail brands in 2020 are Number one, we just talked about it, Amazon. Number two, Walmart. Number three, Costco. Number four, Target. And number five, Whole Foods. That was a surprise. And of course, they're owned by Amazon. Um, let me now switch a little bit to back to school shopping and what's happening there since that's in full gear right now. A new compare card survey, 67% of our parents are stressed about paying we're back to school supplies versus 43% last year. Three in 10 parents expect to go into debt up from 26% last year. Um, most expect to spend 12% more to an average of about $500. One in five expect shopping related fights with their children in terms of what they're gonna buy. So that should be fun to watch. 44% plan to shop mostly online versus 13% last year. So it gives you an idea how much of the online world uh, really is impacting this year during the pandemic. Uh, talking to the pandemic, let, let me give you a quick update in terms of what's going on with curbside retail. So curbside retail was extremely popular for Dick Sporting Goods and, and helped drive a record Q2. 75% of Dick Sporting Goods orders in Q2 were fulfilled by stores, which again reinforces the importance of store and then these adjacent services at the curbside. Best Buy moved to only curbside in March and its online sales surged 242% in the quarter. And Best Buy is actually now working on adding a lot more services at the curb, including notifying you via the app when is the best time where you're not gonna run into a collision in terms of too many people trying to pick up goods at the same time. And similar to what I reported last week, uh, Walmart uh, saw their online sales go up 97%, and a lot of it, again, was to uh, buy online, pick up uh, in store or at the curbside. So these services are becoming a lot more important to retail. And I'm gonna end with a new RSR research on retail business continuity. So one of the questions they ask is how long, and these are questions that they ask to retailers, how long will COVID-19 be an issue, do you believe? So 11% said less than six months, 28% said 
6 to 12 months, 38 percent, 12 to 18 months, and 12 percent, 18 to 24 months. Another question that they ask is the percent rating is very important given the outbreak of uh, COVID-19. And one of the things that RSR does really well, they segment the winners versus the others, and the winners are the ones that really have their act together. And these are the responses for the winners in terms of what they're focused on. So 89% assess and stabilize remote operations at a hyper-local level. 79% assess the health and wellness of their teams. 79% determine changes in consumer buying behavior. 71% understand where our teams are working from so they know exactly where their uh, employees are located. 68% have the ability to adjust business plans based on local conditions. And then a couple other questions. Uh, rate your company's capability to monitor compliance to community laws associated with the pandemic. And this has shocked me, but I guess it makes sense. The winners rated this capability to actually understand what's opening, happening at the local level as excellent at 65%, very good at 29%, and adequate at 5%. So they really understand how to adjust to the local laws. And I'll close with what, what this report reported and it is critical to do for retailers right now. These are the critical things that they need to do as retailers right now. So number one, enable enterprise-wise accurate and near-time uh, visibility to inventory, integrate order management with all the other selling channels, optimize fulfillment processes to cross-channel orders, and these, these will be two things like buy online to pick up in stores, Replace legacy forecasting system with next generation solutions that can utilize new data to model demand at hyper-local. So notice this theme of understanding what's happening at the enterprise level, but actually managing to what's happening actually at the local level. So getting a lot more data from local stores to actually make those decisions. Identify critical operational processes, breakpoints, and uh, automate exception alerts to enable a quick response. Take a hard look at locations, determine which ones are most likely to survive, and consider new operational models. The winners have a handle on these two things, the ability to report operational issues in real time, the ability to perform fast analysis using local data. So I thought that was interesting as we deal with these issues in terms of what some of the winners or the more exceptional retailers are doing to stay ahead of the crisis and actually manage uh, to through the crisis to a new normal. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Tom. Thank you, Reed. Thank you, Tony. I'm gonna go through a couple of things here and I'll, I try not to be repetitive uh, weekly, but I think some of the news uh, is repetitive by nature. So I'm just gonna touch on a couple of things. Uh, one just came out uh, this last week, a report showing that the majority of cyber attacks uh, are directly related to COVID-19 in 2020. Uh, that's a pretty alarming uh, kind of number if you think about what's going on in the globe, that the more organized hackers or criminals on the web are actually targeting COVID-19 related scams. I know we've covered that since the beginning uh, 
prior to this being the weekly review and it was specific to COVID-19, but I thought it was very interesting uh, that it went through. And when you look at that, it is um, glo- a global number. And when we talked a little about this as uh, well as last week, when you're seeing increases of more than 90% in attack vectors specific to cyber uh, security. Interpol also reported last week uh, another uh, assessment on the impact of COVID-19 in cybercrime. They did one in early August. And they put another one. And the significant shift uh, from individuals and small businesses to institutions and larger infrastructure, critical infrastructure, major corporations. This is very, very concerning and should be for the listeners here that uh, early on, this was a small business and medium size, small business, medium size, maybe potential. Uh, but kind of the, the typical targeted attacks, soft targets, if you will, now you're seeing uh, a pretty significant shift to larger financial institutions, retailers, uh, utility companies, and a huge, huge attack on the healthcare and schooling system. Uh, and that's mainly because there's changes in that system. Uh, top cybersecurity experts report 4,000 cyber attacks a day on average uh, since COVID-19 started. So just really, really um, telling numbers. And again, I, I think uh, at the risk of being too repetitive, we know that this is uh, going to continue to happen. Uh, if you go to a U.S. report, you know, I think I mentioned this last week, the FBI is seeing five, four to five hundred percent increases in reported attacks. Um, on last week's show, um, show, I also talked about digital risk protection, and I just think it's a, a great reminder that digital risk protection is not all about cybersecurity. It's about your digital footprint, um, and your digital footprint can be consumption of data. It could be your exception report data uh, coming in, your marketing data, uh, any data points, any digital points in your organization. And I think serves as a reminder as stores are now really open to just take a, a double look at, at some of those physical security measures to protect your digital infrastructure. I think with all of the things going on today, it's easily to, to get distracted. Switching gears a little bit to some of the chatter we're seeing on social media and, and open source uh, from our open source intelligence gathering uh, effort, uh, we're continuing uh, to look at a SOC lab concept here at the LPRC and really looking at a way that we can help support our members with a more robust offering for intelligence gathering. Uh, and it's just it's way more than intelligence gathering. It's response, uh, what vectors we're looking at, how to really define uh, and respond what's going on. And I think you'll see a lot more coming out of that. We're really starting to nail down a phased approach of how we'll consume that data and really get it out to the masses. And that leads me to the importance of not limiting your gathering platform, uh, gathering platforms to a specific social media channel or channels and really to look at the, the, the total landscape of the Internet. Uh, and uh, the example I'll give is Reddit, 4chan, some of these niche uh, networks that are social and nefarious in nature, but not mainstream like your Facebooks and Twitters of the world have a lot of great information, a lot of really, really um, substantial information related specifically to threat. Uh, this, this past week, um, 
I had gathered quite a bit of information specific to uh, actors on both Reddit, 4chan, and Twitter, uh, making statements about where police were going to be present, where um, people should meet to rally. And um, there was a, a stark difference in some of the communication from what I've seen in the past around self-disturbance where there was very specific instruction to be violent and destructive. If you're going to meet here, um, actually one post wrote, if you're going to come meet here, uh, you know, we're not taking the stance of laying quietly and peacefully protesting. We're going to burn this city down. And um, there were several posts that follow that around where to meet, um, actually where to meet to pick up. Uh, it didn't have specifics, but to pick things up to help uh, with uh, setting fires. So accelerants and actually said, come meet here. We have things to help uh, get you into the town with uh, fuel for fire. So I'm looking at some notes here. So some really, some really crazy posts that we haven't seen that level of direct threat. Um, very open uh, on Twitter, um, on Reddit, unfortunately, not hidden in private groups, so very concerning data, as well as out of Chicago, uh, Detroit, and some chatter uh, throughout California uh, where gangs were speaking on social media. And yes, um, there's a lot of chatter, gang chatter about the um, importance of shooting police on site. That was actually the one of the statements uh, that was made in Chicago is that the direction is how important it is for gangs to show uh, the police that there is um, there is a, a target on their head, if you will. And uh, one of the things that was interesting is that through these gangs that are considered rivals, uh, they were spreading the same messaging. So well, we talk often about uh, some of the challenges that law enforcement is facing. Again, some of this overt um you know, uh, conversations that are occurring uh, is definitely concerning. And I'll, I'll round it out with just a reminder, and I know that uh, we did this last week, but uh, as school uh, is starting to be in session for the Northeast, and um, I know in, in some states uh, it's already been in session, just a reminder to talk to your children about good cybersecurity habits, uh, password safety, communication and uh, uh, just another firm reminder to please, please, please keep your work computer separate uh, than the computer that your children are using for school. I, I can't stress enough how important that will be in the next uh, probably uh, three to six months based on some of the activity that we're seeing as far as threat vectors. Well, thank you. And uh, over to you, Reed. And so I think what we'll do is a little bit about Crime Science, the podcast. Um, uh, we've, we've now put out dozens of episodes. We've got more that have just being released, uh, those that have been recorded, not released yet. And we're continuing to set up more with uh, really interesting APLP practitioners, uh, law enforcement practitioners, uh, but obviously criminologists that are working in different areas, social network analysis, crime mapping, um, uh, understanding risk terrain modeling, 
but trying to talk to the people that are doing the research, that are practicing and walking the walk, um, as far as better understanding and focusing and trialing and testing and implementing uh, and carrying out uh, crime and loss control in the real world, in the real world uh, with real humans uh, that we all know that we are very unpredictable um, and are capable of all kind of not so great things when it comes to theft, fraud, and violence. In other words, victimizing other people uh, and their places. So um, what we'll do, Kevin, uh, are you able to give us some idea of some of the recently released Crime Science Podcast episodes and what's uh, in the pipeline to come our way? For sure. So recently we just released an episode with uh, Dr. Laura Huey. Uh, and she was from the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. That was just released last week. Check it out. We also have one upcoming with Dr. Ryland Simpson that should be released next week, and he is from SFU. And then in the future, we are recording a few episodes with uh, Dr. Ali Mom from the California State University, and we're going to talk about policing and social policy with her. And then last but not least, we have longtime collaborator uh, Nolan Scaife, who is now at the University of Colorado. And we'll talk about uh, cybersecurity with him on that episode coming up. And those should be the next few episodes. Stay tuned. Wow. Thanks so much, Kevin. All right. Well, everybody out there, uh, please stay safe. So thanks so much, Kevin. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tony, for all your insights, your valuable time. Um, And for you all out there listening to Crime Science, the podcast, uh, signing off from Gainesville, this is Reed Hayes. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.